Thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast. This is Lauren, and this week we have another Wealth Wednesday Twitter space for you from May 25th, 2022. Our usual panel is here. That's me at Adulting is Easy, Tom the Frugal Gay, Clint Murphy, Stephen Wealthy, and we brought along with us Mary, Alan Corey, and Hipster Finance to talk debt this week. Covered margin, net worth borrowing, being risk respectful, real estate, paying off your primary especially. It's a really good one. Had a lot of fun with it, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. Welcome to Wealth Wednesday. We do this every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. We get together. We have a regular panel here. Myself, Stephen Wealthy, Clint, Lauren from Adulting is Easy podcast, and I should say Clint is from the uh, Pursuit of Learning podcast, and we also have Tom the Frugal Gay from thefrugalgay.com, and we have as well with us tonight Mary, Ace, um, Alan Corey, and Hipster Finance with us to talk about debt. We want to get into the pros, cons, and things to avoid, such as maybe bankruptcy, so that we can build wealth and achieve our financial goals and financial independence. So tonight we have a packed panel, so we'll be short on the responses and questions. But what I want to do first off is go around the room, give a brief introduction in case there are people who are joining us for the first time this evening. So let's start with Lauren, and then we'll go over to Jeremy with Hipster Finance. Um, hey, everybody. Lauren from Adulting is Easy. Just so you know, this is being recorded. It'll be posted on the Adulting is Easy podcast feed in a little bit, a couple days or so. So if you have to jump off, no problem. You can catch it there. Um, in Tampa Bay, Florida, have um, 12 rental doors, have a bit of stocks and stuff in my retirement portfolio. Um, 32 set to retire in the next couple of years, and I am in sales. All right, I'll kick it to you, Jeremy. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I run Hipster Finance, uh, basically a, a money and mindset page on Instagram and Twitter. And I've got a free weekly newsletter um, where I send out thoughts on that. Um, and yeah, in terms of my investing, uh, mostly heavy into stocks. I do not have uh, any debt since we're in that debt free versus super high debt conversation. And, uh, you know, certainly think there's pros and cons of both, which we'll get into later. Uh, excited for the combo. Awesome. Very cool. I did not actually know that about you, Jeremy, that you had no debt whatsoever. So that's that's fantastic. Uh, Tom, over to you and then Mary. Hi, guys. My name's Tom Brickman. I go by the Frugal Gay here on Instagram and Twitter. And I am a landlord based in Dallas, Texas. I own 20 doors between Texas and Toledo, Ohio. I, like Jeremy, am very light on debt. I do have some debt on my 20 doors, but I was, I'm conservative on my debts. So I've grown slowly over the past 17 years of buying properties. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Mary. I'm uh, Mary. I'm sort of in the process of rebranding. So probably going to be called um, or running a website called Get Money Smarter. But I am from the Tampa Bay area as well. My husband and I were both teachers and decided we wanted to move up retirement, spend more time with our kids. So we've bought um, 
uh, seven properties here. I've branched out into Toledo, Ohio recently. So I have an eighth property there and looking for a few more. And I've used debt to scale up quickly in the span of just a few years. So um, I, uh, I thought I'd be paying down all the debt and I've sort of uh, moved to the dark side of the debt. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I love that. Move over to the dark side of debt. Speaking of the dark side of debt, Alan and then Clint. <laughs> I appreciate that. Intro, I, I, I gave you that segue there. That's the good side of debt. Um, this is Alan Corey, otherwise known as AC. Um, I have been a real estate investor for 22 years, half of my life. Uh, got over 300 doors and counting probably closer to 400. Um, I love debt. I can't wait to get more debt. And I encourage everyone to get as much debt as possible. And I talk about this on my podcast and my website, the house of AC. Uh, so uh, if I win you guys over um, that, that's where you're going to get more of that advice. So thanks for having me. All right, that brings it over to me. Hi guys. I am Clint Murphy. I run the pursuit of learning podcast. By day, I am a CFO. At night, I am a, a writer, a podcast host, and a real estate investor. I have eight doors, a principal home, five townhouses, an apartment, and a summer cottage. And I think uh, as recent as today or tomorrow, we're signing a contract for our next acquisition. We'll close on that one in 2025. It's the most expensive price I'll pay per square foot. So excited for that. And debt. Oh, I love debt. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Uh, we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of about $7 million in debt right now. And I always say I want a billion dollars in debt. Like if someone's willing to give it to me, I will figure out how to use it appropriately and make lots of money for me and the uh, people that are lending it to me. Back over to you, Steve. Awesome. Thanks, Clint. Uh, I'll finish with the intros. Uh, I'm Stephen Wealthy. I'm probably the moderate here on the debt side. I have some. I have one property, obviously my primary residence, and I also have a rental. And I also have some debt against stock that I use to leverage for for you know, obvious reasons. Uh, I try to keep my debt as low as possible. I'm down at about the 30% loan-to-value ratio. Um, I understand its value and how it can help accelerate build wealth, uh, but I'm also a little timid in terms of if I run into problems, what do I handle or how can I handle it? And the payments and stuff have to come with it. So I'm very interested in the conversation that we can get going here tonight especially from the guys like Clint and AC who are very big into debt. I really want to know from you guys, how do you handle such heavy, uh, like the numbers are, are massive and stuff. So I would love to start with AC. Uh, Alan, how you said you love debt. Uh, you want to win us over with debt. Please give us your kind of two to three minute spiel on it, why it's good. And how do you handle such a high debt load? 
Sure. Um, yeah, I was just trying to calculate. I think I've got about $30 million of debt. And so uh, I, that's what makes me sleep at night. When I had a paid off property, I was up all night uh, feeling like I was wasting my money. Um, the, the long and short of it is, um, let's say I put $100,000 into a property and it appreciates $200,000. I want to pull out that $100,000 as much as possible. Uh, or as fast as possible, I should say. And that way it's risk-free. I don't care if that goes to zero. I don't care if it goes foreclosed, you know, foreclosed on. Obviously I care, but worst case scenario, I lose nothing. I put 100K in to acquire the property. I do whatever I can to get my original 100K out. Now I've got 100K to go put on another property to get a bigger mortgage. Uh, I improve that property or I wait to buy and hold appreciation, whatever it takes to... I just monitor when can I pull out all the money in that property as soon as I possibly can. And to me, I feel like I have all these properties that are risk-free, 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 because I have no money in it, my, no to my own personal money in it. And the tenants are paying off my debt and it's just a waiting game. So the more debt I can get, the more the tenants uh, can pay off the debt. And 30 years from now, you know, they'll all be paid off. I'll do a cash out refi. It's all tax free. And I get back in the game and go acquire more properties. So that's sort of the, the, the quick synopsis of, of the way I view real estate investing. Clint, what do you agree with there? And what do you have concerns with there? See, sorry, Steve, I was away from the keyboard for a minute. Can I get a, a quick recap? Uh, yeah, so Alan loves debt. Uh, he puts in his original investment and tries to see how quickly he can get it out so that he can take that original investment and put it into other properties ASAP. He has about $30 million worth of debt. I, 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 agree, I, with, I, I agree with all of it, every single little syllable. The so, I mean, different situation because Alan, I, I'm assuming if you're saying that you're you're buying properties, rehabbing, upgrading, a, a bit more of a BRRRR method. Uh, whereas in my situation, I tend to be buying all new all new product. Correct. Okay. The so the Steve, if I if I could, yeah, I'd be doing the exact same thing as Alan, right? Like that's on my that's on my list to do. Uh, when I we were talking to Tom in the chat, and I said I wanted to come down to Ohio, uh, and then he told me Mary beat me to the punch with with the same idea, and I thought, wow, she's good, she's quick. But the what I've done on ours is because each time we've closed, we've tended to have significant lift in the properties relative to when we purchased them. And obviously people are, are going to be wondering why on that. And so for example, the last two we closed on, we put under contract in the spring of 2019 and we closed in 2021. So we had that run up from the start of COVID for a year and a half. And the two that we're closing on next week we put those under contract June of 2019. And so when I say under contract, that's because I've tended to purchase pre-sale condominiums or pre-sale townhouses. The developer looking to develop a project, 
sells the home in advance of starting construction, so the bank will give them more money. They pre-sell a certain number of the properties, so you purchase that well in advance of occupancy permit or well in advance of when you're able to move in for people who may not know what occupancy permit is. And so on these two that we're closing on next week, the lift is roughly 60% of the purchase price. And so we're closing with, you know, we're putting, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250000 equity into the project, but then we'll have about 450000 in debt that we can use to take that equity out if we want and put into new properties. So I'll do the same as Alan. Uh, I may not put it all out right away, but I, I think there'll be a bit of a slowdown this fall and I'll put it out this fall. Lauren, you had something to add? I was just curious about Canada and limits on mortgages. Is there a limit, Clint, to how many you can have personally, or do you maybe do you have these in businesses? Yeah, so so I'm getting pretty close to the limit, and I, I think you start to run into different challenges, right? And part of my borrowing now, Lauren, is is crossing into what you what you might call net worth borrowing. So I'm not necessarily borrowing against that specific property, but I'm borrowing you know, the mortgage is on the property, but when they're underwriting it, they're also underwriting me. So they're looking at my income from my day job. Although my understanding is now I'm crossing a threshold where they're not allowed to consider my income anymore. It has to be on a property by property rate basis, but there's also just um, working with some of the high net worth groups. You're able to underwrite your own personal balance sheet, if you will, Lauren. And these, these last two that we're closing on uh, June 3rd are going into our corporation. Yeah. Uh, which is jointly owned by my wife. and me. Alan, is that something that happens here in the States? Like this kind of net worth borrowing that Clint's talking about? Yeah, exactly. So um, I touched upon it a little bit last time. Um, this may be a longer answer than you wanted, but assume that you have like a commercial real estate property that's, $20 million, you know, that this would be a great situation for all of us. Um, and it's um, completely paid off. People will take one and HELOC, you know, you go get a HELOC, home equity line of credit against that, let's say a $10,000 mortgage. And then they take that $10,000 mortgage and they put it in a Vanguard mutual fund. And then you can get a credit line against your Vanguard mutual fund of half that balance. So a $5 million. You take that $5 million, you put it in Bitcoin. Um, you take that $5 million and uh, Bitcoin, you get a credit line against your Bitcoin for half that, $2.5 million. You take that $2.5 million, you put it in a business. Uh, go buy a business that cash flows $600,000. You can get a cre credit line against that business of, of $1.5 million. You take that $1.5 million, you put it into as a 25% down payment on the residential real estate, that's $6 million. That's what wealthy people do. They just made their, they gave their job, they gave eight jobs right there in that example for their money. So a lot of people's like, have your money work for you? That is how someone takes, they, they took that original $10 million HELOC instead of selling their property. 
They took a HELOC, and that property is still going to appreciate roughly 3%, right? And then they put it in Vanguard, that $10 million that they didn't have. They borrowed it from one part, put it in something else, and that's going to earn them 8%. They took a credit because they got $10 million in Vanguard. $5 million of it's going to earn them 8%. They're borrowing 5% on the credit line at 4%, but they're still leaving all $10 million in there. So half of it's making 8%, half of it's making 4%. They're taking that, that half of that, that 5 million, putting it in crypto. Who knows? Maybe it goes to zero, maybe it goes to 100. But the, the thing is, he, what they're doing is they're basically borrowing against their net worth, putting in another asset, borrowing against that asset, putting into another asset. And it might sound risky, but the way I look at it is they've now diversified across eight different businesses. If four of them fail, they're still making money that more money than if they didn't borrow at all, you know, in some scenarios, depending on how the other do, if all seven fail, then they would have made more money still doing this. Uh, so it's just sort of buying an asset, lending against it. And so it's, it's called portfolio lending where, Hey, let me see your net worth. Let me see your portfolio. Typically it's in one genre. Hey, I'll give you a credit line only on your stocks. I'll do it only across your entire real estate portfolio. I'll do it across your mutual funds. Um, and you just borrow against it and reallocate it somewhere else. And that's, that's how the wealthy think. Okay. So there's some risks that come with that though. Uh, Tom, you got your hand up, but I, I agree with the principal Alan. There's, there's some risks that come with it. Uh, Tom, you have something to add to it? Yeah, I just wanted to, so I am relatively low on debt. I've got almost $2 million in real estate, and I carry about $400,000 worth of debt, and it's actually only on three of the 20 doors. Um, so I have lots of untouched um, equity in my properties and a lot of paid-off doors. But um, what I'm exploring now is something like what Alan is discussing uh, where I'm, I'm talking with two lenders right now, and they're they're doing a guidance line of credit, which I don't know if this is Texas specific or if this works across the uh, U.S. But basically, they're looking at my portfolio and they're saying, "Okay, we're going to free up five hundred thousand dollars of of basically like an equity line of credit. If you find us a property and bring it to us, we'll finance it. You know, you have five hundred thousand dollars worth of properties you can buy with us." Uh, and it's there and it's it's done. So if I find them, they could close that property for me within 10 days as well. So it's almost like buying a property in cash. Um, so that's something that I'm looking at. And it sounds kind of like because they're looking at my net worth. They're looking at my paid off assets. And that's how they're loaning to me now. I'm I'm no longer in where I can go and get a regular traditional loan um, because of all the doors and the different businesses. But um, I'm exploring this, so if the good deals do come or the right property does pop up, that I am ready and I can buy it within 10 to 12 days. Lauren, you your hand up. Yeah, I was just curious, Tom, what's the interest rate on that line of credit and is it um, adjustable? It is adjustable. Um, it was in the sixes, but I don't pay until I start using it. So I have it until I use it. I have it at, at no cost till I use it. Okay, got it. Thank you. Steven, I'd love to hear what you thought the risk were when that. Yeah, no, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And sorry. And, and I apologize if it came across that I was, 
uh, challenge you on it and stuff. I, oh, I do I agree be with the principle of yeah. it. So uh, I guess it's the, the the domino effect of those assets if they start to be challenged on their value they start to dip and then you have to start liquidating some of the assets to cover if let's just call it a margin loan or uh the loan to value starts to get go below the value and so you're forced to start liquidating an asset to cover the the leverage against the other asset and then that one starts to fall and so just the cascading effect of it i do appreciate that you have it against real estate and then a vanguard mutual fund or etf and then uh, Bitcoin, uh, but it's just the stacking of leverage on top of leverage on top of leverage. That's where I would just get I get just a little bit squirrely with it. Um, if it works, yeah, you're off to the moon with it for sure. Uh, it'll launch yeah. into a whole new whole new wealth bracket and. I mean, you know what I'm concerned about, right? It's just that last probably two assets that you bought, those get challenged on price. You have to liquidate, and then you're cascading in, and then you got nothing. You had the 10 to start with, and now you got nothing. Yeah, but you combine that with my first answer, and and to me, it's it's risky if I don't do this. I combine that with my first answer where I said, hey, I have got nothing in this building, you know, kind of thing. Like, it's it's... I'm, I'm pulling out my money and my personal money, it stays there. And then the asset just pays for itself. And then that asset pays for the next asset. That asset pays for the next asset. That asset pays for the next asset. So it's just this chain of all these assets paying for itself. And so I don't personally lose. And also I'm spreading my risk around. Um, and like in that scenario, I bought, I borrowed $10 million, but I, you know, I'm, 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 put that $10 million to work, that's going to be earning a variety of returns. And the way I look at it is, you know, I'm not doing hard money loans. These are, these are banks that are the most conservative money lending partners in the world. They are only going to allow you to give you 50% equity, you know, on this, you know, on your mutual funds, on your Bitcoin, like there, it really has to drop by more than 50%. And then if that happens, it's probably a wider economy thing. Uh, but yeah, more typically, seven of do them you, will carry the. Do you, yeah, no. Okay, and then, do you mind if I ask you? Are you are you personally doing this, and are you driving it as hard as you say you are? I this is my goal. No, I don't have enough income right now, or I mean, enough assets to do this right now. But this is like what I'm seeing, like. Um, this is what Elon Musk does. Like when he bought Twitter, he's not writing a check to buy Twitter. He's borrowing a margin loan on his Tesla shares. And then when he bought Tesla, he did that on uh, the shares of PayPal. And so I'm studying what the billionaires are doing. And it's just, oh, it's, it's backed by another company and backed by another company and backed by another asset. Yeah, no, I, I got you. But yeah. Okay, we got we got some hands up here. Uh, let's go, Jeremy, and then Mary. Yeah, I mean, just just in terms of uh, what's being discussed right now, I mean, I think <laughs> I think it sounds awesome if you're smart enough to pull it off. I personally don't think I'm smart enough to pull that off, 
not even close. Um, whenever I think about debt, you know, you just think about what you're comfortable with. And, and I know, you know, Alan mentioned uh, if Bitcoin's going down 50%, that's probably a part of, or any other assets, it's a part of a wider economic problem. That's where my brain goes is I think nightmare scenarios. And I think, all right, Bitcoin dumps 50%. I get margin called. Uh, and uh, maybe there's a wider economic problem. If you have an income from a job, maybe you lose that job. Maybe your side business goes under, et cetera. Uh, and, and that's where my mind goes. It's, it's essentially that domino effect you were mentioning, Stephen. Um, me personally, again, I don't own property. Um, I think what uh, a lot of those on this call are doing is, is epic. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly uh, learning from them. But it's all what you're willing to sleep on. And, uh, you know, Alan sleeps good with a lot of debt. I don't. Um, I was even worried for Elon Musk. You know, he mentioned Elon Musk. He's got the Twitter deal going on. He's borrowed against shares um, to pull it off. And we've seen a dump in Tesla's value. And I'm sitting there thinking like, man, what if it keeps dumping? Like, what's he going to do if it gets called? Um, you know, and uh, there's also, I mean, I don't know. Is, is there such a thing as a, as a HELOC getting called due? Like, has that ever happened? Yes, that, that, that happened in the financial crash. Yeah. So again, you know, the, the other thing to remember, which is what I always tell myself, obviously I am uh, risk averse. Um, and I tend to think about these scenarios all the time. A lot of what I work through, uh, if all that stuff is going wrong, you probably have bigger problems anyway, um, to Alan's point. Uh, but it just makes me sleep better at night. Um, again, I don't own property. I think I took out $2,000 in margin um, on M1 Finance last year for fun. Um, and I was nervous the whole time. I felt like I was, I was uh, playing some fun, risky games. And it was a very, very tiny part of my portfolio. Um, but uh, again, overall, I, I just think it's, it's what you're comfortable with. Um, recently in the news, they had Bad Baby. I don't know if anybody's familiar with her, uh, the Cash Me Outside girl. Uh, and supposedly she bought a house for six million in cash, and people were trashing on her, saying how dumb it was. Um, and you know, you could certainly argue there's better uses for the money. Uh, but in terms of celebrities, somebody buying a house in cash, and she now owns an asset um, that's worth that much. Uh, you know, you, I don't think you can say it's a dumb decision overall. Well, I, Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, no, well, yeah, for sure, Alan. Sorry, I, I see a lot of hands. I'll, I'll try to make it quick. I, what uh, I want to sort of just say to Hipster Finance that I think the struggle that people have is that they're, like you mentioned, your day job. What happens with your day job or your side hustle? But to me, I'm only buying assets that pay for itself, meaning I would never go and never buy a property that's negative cash flow, right? The, the cash flow is paying for itself. I've built in of my models that it's going to, you know, overcome crazy maintenance uh, each month and property management fees and, you know, taxes, raises, like I, I prepare for all these scenarios and the asset's going to pay for itself. So it's completely detached from my personal income. Um, and so if that asset fails, then that asset fails. It's like if a business goes out of business um, and it doesn't affect all my other business, it's standalone by itself. Um, and so that's sort of, it, to me, I don't see the domino. And I also, I don't see my personal income having to carry any of these properties. And the banks don't either because the banks are not giving my, the, the 
they're giving my LLC a loan. They're not giving Alan Corey, my personal name, the loan on these things too. So um, that that's that's also a sort of a mindset shift on on taking some of this debt on. Gotcha. Okay, um, I want to move over to Mary, Clint, and then I invited Uncommon Yield up here. He had a couple of points he wanted to make. So Mary, Clint, and then Uncommon. Yeah, so I um, I kind of want to speak to the confidence level as well. I, it does take a lot of confidence to take on the debt. And um, what Alan was, was talking about, you know, I wouldn't quite have uh, that kind of confidence because they're kind of branching into – um, borrowing money to buy this business and to do these things, right? But on kind of my level, um, for real estate, debt makes a lot of sense. It's a, you know, it's a cash flowing asset. Um, you start to build confidence up once you kind of get a couple of deals going, you you see the cash flow coming in, you, you know, you bought right. If you refinance, you find out the, uh, what you can do with that, um, and the kind of incredible power behind it. And so you do start to feel more comfortable and confident with debt. I wouldn't be able to do it myself for like margin calls. I know traders make 10 X their money doing those kind of things, or, um, you know, you can, you can get debt to buy a business, but you should know what you're doing. Right. Um, for me, it works really well in real estate. It makes sense. And so, um, I'm comfortable with that. You do still have to buy right um, and and kind of know your market and know what you're doing and know nothing will ever be perfect, but real estate is pretty forgiving, um, especially if you have a longer time horizon. Um, and so I, that's kind of why for me with debt, it makes sense in real estate. Um, and I think our, our minds go to you know, credit card debt or student loan debt or those kind of debts. Um, and I'm not comfortable with those debts, right? But when you have something that it's a, uh, a cash flowing asset, you have tenants that are paying down the debt that you get tax breaks from, you're, you know, it, it lowers your taxable income. There's all these benefits that come with it. Um, and just to make a quick point, which we haven't quite talked about for the debt side of things is with inflation, having mortgage debt, you're every year paying the same fixed rate if you have a 30 year fixed mortgage with cheaper and cheaper money, right? And so inflation is a great time to have uh, inflation inflate away the debt of your, um, you know, your assets that you have. Um, and on top of it, the other point is the, um, you know, if someone were to sue you, which people like to do here sometimes, right? Even if you have it in an LLC, oftentimes they can get at your 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 property through an LLC. But, you know, if you have no debt on your property, uh, I think a lawyer is much more willing to go after that asset than if you have a, you know, 75% loan to value um, and, and high debt. And so that's kind of another argument for a little bit of protection if uh, because the lawyer ultimately is going to decide if they're going to go after a person or what they're going to do. Um, and so kind of another way to protect yourself is to actually have debt on your property. So I kind of want to throw those couple of points out there. But I want to go to Clint and then over to Uncommon Yield for their comments. Yeah, I just wanted to echo a bit, a bit of what I was hearing from Hipster and some of the other people is 
you know, I'm, I'm the biggest fan in the world of debt. Whenever you hear me talk about uh, debt on my properties and my approach, you know, when I was on the Vancouver real estate podcast talking about the same thing, they, they really dug into this because it's, it, it starts to sound and Alan, you're probably hearing the same thing. Like people almost are thinking like Icarus, we're flying too close to the sun and, and the wings are going to get burned and we're going to come crashing down to earth and, and lose everything. And, you know, that's not untrue. I'm going to start there. And what I mean by that is it's high risk right? Anytime you're maximizing the debt you can get over and over and over, there's an, there's an element of risk to that. And, and so you have to be aware of that. So it's, are you doing your homework on every acquisition? What is your loan to value as a percentage of your portfolio? You know, when I talk about my debt levels, it probably comes across that I am like 90% loan to value, but when you when you look at my portfolio as a whole, I'm probably somewhere in that 65 to 70 percent loan to value. So I have like a 30 percent cushion that values have to drop before I eliminate my equity. Right. So I, I feel very comfortable with my asset base, given that. And that's part of what gives me comfort taking out more debt on those properties. What it means is some of the, those properties that I may have debt maximized at the time that I bought them, I re-upped my, right? So as an example, Stephen, I talked about two closed on and one, one of them was December, 2020. One of them was uh, early 2021. And I'd gotten those under contract in 2019. At the time I got them, at the time that I closed on them, we, we had a value of about 650 and the closing price was in the low fives. So we pulled out, you know, a hundred grand, 150 grand in extra debt between the two of them that took out some of our equity in the time since they were appraised there at 625 to 650 each in that range, they're now in the 850 to 900 range, but I haven't taken out any extra debt. Yes, I've already talked to my wife and said, hey, once we close on these two in June, can you get the ball rolling on getting those two reappraised so we can up the HELOC so we have access to more debt? But I haven't necessarily earmarked it for something, right? I, I mean, I've, I've talked to Tom and, and I want to fly to, you know, I want to do my research, do my homework, create a thesis and understand the Ohio market. And then I want to have a, and, and then I want to understand how can I raise debt in the U.S as a Canadian. Once I know that, then I'm in a position where I can take debt against those Canadian properties, head down with Tom and go on a bit of a, you know, that song, uh, I'm on a shopping spree with Sony and Mia, but anyway, I want to go on a shopping spree with Tom and pick up, pick up, you know, based on the prices he has, I want to, I want to go from, I want to go from nine doors to catch him at 20. Like it's, because buying 11 doors, Tom tells me that's basically like buying one townhouse up here. So it just seems, seems like I should attempt to try that and, and see what it's like. Because the scary part is I pay, uh, I might pay 11 times his price, but we basically get the same cash flow. And so something doesn't make sense mathematically. That's why I have to go see it to believe it and understand the whole process. So you could, I, 
part part of what I'm saying is I absolutely think it's high risk for us to just debt, 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 debt. And, and at the same time, I, I think Alan, I think my approach, I think the way we talk about debt is we would take as much as you could conceivably give us. But I think we are both being uh, risk respectful. That that's the way I would describe it. Is is you have to be risk respectful with your investments. You have to have your emergency funds. You have to have your your lines of credit, your your cash reserves, Steve. And so I think if you're gonna play the big debt game, you have to be reasonably smart about it because your loans can always be called, whether they're HELOCs, whether they're debt. You even learn this as a de developer. Almost every loan you sign to build a project is what's known as a demand loan, which means at any point in time, the bank can demand the money back. So uh, back to you, Steve. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Terrific points. Love it. Um, for you guys in the audience here tonight with us, please take a moment to click on the profiles of everyone who's on the panel, all of the speakers here tonight, and give them a follow. These are all terrific accounts. Terrific tweets every single day. They share incredible insights on how to increase your wealth, your portfolio, and your net worth. And uh, just highly recommend every single one of them. Uncommon Yield, love to hear from you, buddy. You've been waiting for a few minutes. What are your thoughts? What's going through your mind, man? Hey, uh, thanks for having me on, Stephen. And like lots of familiar places, you know, hi, Hipster and Clint, Tom. Um, I know I've seen Mary and Lauren around, so appreciate appreciate you calling me up. So, Alan, uh, you know, I definitely I am definitely in the pro debt camp. You know, I, I I hear what you're saying, but I think the way that you're describing it is really dangerous. Uh, so there's you know there's two kinds of debt. So Clint talked a lot about their just like callable debt. So anytime you take a margin loan, that's callable debt. So you're saying like you know you take take debt out of that property and put it into a Vanguard account and take out. A mar you know, buy index funds and then buy a margin loan. That's when you have a margin loan, that's callable debt. So, but when you have a loan on a, a fixed, you know, 30 year mortgage on a property that is non-callable debt, right? Bank can't just call you up and say, Hey, you need to pay this back right now. If you have a HELOC, that's callable debt. So you have to be really careful about how you do it. Cause when things start to go South economically, a lot of those loans can be called all at one time. And if you max a mark, a, a if you max a margin loan out, so let's say Vanguard will give you a 50% loan to value alone. Well, every time that that account value drops, you're going to need to, if, if, it, if it drops from that point, you take that loan or if it drops less than 50%, you know, your, your account, your account value or, or that loan is then more than 50%, you're going to have to put more money into that account. And if you're levering yourself that many times over and over again, that's really dangerous. The other thing to think about, too, with people that are very, very wealthy is they get very, very, very cheap debt, a margin debt. So for any of us here, even Clint, who I know is balling out of control, right, he's he's probably still going to pay, you know, one at least a couple percent. Somebody like Elon Musk, he's probably playing a half to three quarters of a percent on his money that he takes out. I mean, he's playing a completely different game. So I just think you have to be really careful about what you roll that debt into. I'm definitely pro debt. I'm definitely pro using it like in a smart way, but you have to use it. Um, I think Clinton put, Clint put it well. You have to use it in a really intelligent way. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to get burned. You know, you're just going to end up having all your assets called away. So you just have to be you just have to be really careful. 
And you just have to be really careful on like what, um, if you lever that many times too, and sometimes risky assets like something like Bitcoin, you're not going to get a 50%, you're not going to be able to 40% of that equity. You might be able to pull out 25% of that equity. You might be paying a really, really high interest rate at that point because crypto is riskier, risky too. So you just have to really think about it. It sounds nice. It sounds clean, but it's really, really messy. Uh, and you have to be really careful. Uh, I just want to jump in. 100% agree with everything you just said and common yield. That's exactly right. And I, I think it pairs well with Clint's advice, which is you got to have debt and respect that debt. So, um, yeah, you don't want to fly too close to the sun. Some people may be comfortable with taking all 50% off that Vanguard fund. But if you're not that person, then only do 25%, uh, you know, so a uh, credit line instead of a 50% credit line. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. This is what I'm teaching is the is like exposing this is how the rich make their money. And it goes much further and it works much better for them because, Vanguard doesn't want them to sell the stocks. Uh, they probably don't have their money in Vanguard. But if you've got $3 billion in Vanguard, they want you to keep your money in Vanguard. And they're going to give you a margin loan on that uh, or credit line against that at half a percent. And that way you're keeping your stocks in there. And then you're but you can borrow at such a low rate to go make more money somewhere else. But and but it's not a, I, I guess Alan, my point is it's not going to be a loan rate, a low rate unless you have a lot, a lot of money. So you have to get to, to have account values of probably like 5 million to get yeah. that super, super low rate. And, and I don't think any of us here are quite there yet. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're there at some point. So you just have to, so for all of us, we're probably talking a few percentage points. Well, it's like, okay, now you have to overcome that cost of capital in that next investment to have it make sense for you. Right. So, so yeah. So let's walk down that path. Let's assume that it's 5%. You, you, whatever you've got, you're able to get a hundred thousand dollar credit line at five percent, which is the same as a mortgage. I can go buy a house with a hundred thousand dollar down payment. It's basically a hundred percent financed. You know, a hundred thousand dollar down payment, and then I'm buying a whatever. Maybe I put fifty percent down payment on a house, uh, and I'm buying a two hundred thousand dollar house. As long as that's cash flowing, and I've I've got the buffers, I've got you know all the emergency funds and everything. I just got a free house, 100% finance. I slowly pay back my credit line on my Vanguard and pay down the mortgage debt. And if um, price, house prices go up 10%, I made $10,000. And then maybe if it goes up uh, 50% and that house is now, or I, actually it's a $200,000 house, so I made $20,000. Um, at some point, Maybe I put some money into renovating it, fixing it up. It's a $350,000 house. I do a cash out refi, pay off my entire mortgage, uh, or I'm sorry, my credit line, and I leave something for the mortgage, and I get some money out, cash out some money. It's a win-win. It's a risk-free house, and I've reduced risk. So, it but, it's, it's, but, it's, but it's not a risk-free house because it's still an asset. Things can still go wrong. I guess that that's my point is – I understand completely. Like yeah, I look yeah. at this kind of stuff, I totally get what you're saying. But it's not risk free. It's very risky. If if you leverage yourself over and over and over again, you risk losing a lot. You could gain a lot. You gain incrementally a lot, right? So if you leverage it and then you make an extra ten thousand dollars, you made that out of essentially nothing, right? You just right. your cost was just your cost of capital, which right. is a very high rate of return, even if you only make a few percent. 
totally get it. Yeah. But that is that is a super risky way. If you're going max leverage on every single thing, like that, that is a hundred percent a recipe for disaster. That's how we had 2008 financial crisis. Was everybody was all was all the businesses and all the investment banks leveraging everything to the max, and then all yeah. of a sudden when it doesn't work, when it just it doesn't work, nothing works, and then it falls like a house of cards. So I get what you're saying, but I don't think it's that simple. Um, yeah, it's 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 not that simple and it's not that clean. Uh, I I see where you're coming from, hundred percent too. Uh, I I guess it's I understand real estate and that I'm I'm very confident in my numbers and, and and so it doesn't feel like a risk to me. But like putting that money into cryptocurrency, then where I have no control and I I, I can't you know be in charge of of changing the value or it's not an asset that's paying for itself. Me, I see a lot more risk there, but also I feel like I, I should be exposed in, to Bitcoin uh, because I've got so much in real estate. So I, I guess it's, it's your appetite compared to my appetite. And it's, it's having your backup plans, your emergency funds, you know, things like that. To me, it's, if I was in all cash and, the risk is the upside. the The lack of exposure to the um, upside is risky. Okay, so it, it's okay. I just want to shift it just a little bit here, Alan. Um, and I appreciate you might even feel like you're in the hot seat here with all the different questions coming at you. I'm but I think Clint, I think yeah. I think Clint, Clint's got your back here. So you guys are kind of in the corner together, fighting the good fight here, and and really appreciate what you guys are doing because this is a great lesson for all of us, and we can learn a ton. And we can have different views, and it's excellent. I okay. You said you've been doing this for twenty-two years. I have two questions for you. One: How long did it take you before you got really aggressive? And then, second: How did two thousand and eight go for you? Yeah. So um, first, it was probably it took me four years, um, and the the run up before the crash. 2006, 2007, uh, benefited me greatly, like it did everyone who had an asset. And so I had a, I, I had a, a, a duplex that was probably an $800,000 duplex. I, I bought it for $400,000, fixed it up. It was probably $800,000. Somehow I, I went to go get a HELOC. The appraisal came in at $1.3 million. So I got a $300,000 line of credit. I took that $300,000, bought my neighboring house, uh, which is another duplex that was a million dollars, put $300,000 down payment. It um, was cash flowing. It paid, I think it was profiting maybe $3,000 cash flow after just basically 100% pri- financed uh, property. The, the, the crash came and the ones that were cash flowing didn't affect me. It didn't really drop the rents. Everyone had a 12 month lease, but it, it, didn't drop the leases. They sort of just plateaued. And so I didn't have to sell it. Um, if I was in position where I had an arm uh, mortgage, adjustable rate mortgage, I would have been caught with my pants down like a lot of people. Uh, but I had a 30 year fixed. Uh, my HELOC was a worry of mine that it was going to be called. Uh, but I put that entire 2,500, 3,000 that I was making cash flow back in my credit line every single month. So it wasn't like I was living off that cash flow. My goal was to pay down that HELOC as fast as I possibly could. And so 
that is where I learned, hey, this is a good good strategy to acquire more properties that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to. And two, if I'm a real estate investor and I'm buying a cash flowing asset, I wait to sell. The, the, I wait for the market conditions to sell. Otherwise, I sit out and just rent it until the market conditions change. And I waited until that $1 million property that I basically, I look at as I got for free, went up to $2 million, you know, like six years later, um, Brooklyn changed. You know, I bought it when no one wanted to live in Brooklyn. I got really lucky. I, I say homes come with imaginary lottery tickets uh, uh, called appreciation that I had nothing to do with. So I want as many lottery tickets as possible um, to cash in on this potential appreciation. And when it got up to $2 million, I could either do a cash out refi and pull money back out that I'd never put into it that was tax free. Uh, I ended up selling it and doing, doing a 1031 exchange and putting it down as a down payment on uh, portfolio properties that are still cash flowing. And, and so I was able to leverage it and leverage it. And this all came with a zero down, zero out of pocket. And so one, I, I learned how to weather the storm and two, how to leverage the money. It's, it's obviously, uh, maybe I've, I've been cursed with falling in love with debt uh, based on that story. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. Uh, Clayton, you had your hand up there, bud? Yeah, I want to come down the fence on this one. I, I think one of the, the important things we have to think about is usually when you're borrowing against income properties, right, the bank's going to look at two things. The bank's going to look at, at your loan to value, and they're going to look at your debt service coverage. And so I, I think when we talk about downturns in real estate, and, and you guys may see something different in America, so totally correct me if I'm wrong, but generally in metrotop, metropolitan areas, what you'll see is that when there's a correction, the correction is generally in the for sale value. It's not frequently in the rental rate. Right. And so if your rents aren't changing, running high vacancies, then your cash flows should remain relatively consistent. So the bank in that situation may come to you and say, hey, the loan to value is off. You know, you should be putting some money in, but but you may be able to have a conversation around the debt service, the fact that it's still cash flowing the fact that you're still covering your mortgage payments and having surplus on top of that. So I don't think just because there's a market downturn, it necessarily means you have to put equity into all your properties. I think you would have to examine where are my debt levels relative to the cash flows I have? What's my debt service coverage? And if you're fairly comfortable from a debt service coverage perspective, you should be able to weather that downturn. You should be okay. Lauren, what are some of the thoughts that are going through your mind as we've been listening on here tonight in terms of, well, you're in the short-term rental game, and I love what you're building out there in Florida. What's the debt load like there with what you're doing, and how are you handling all of it? Yeah, so I haven't had a super recent appraisal of my three properties, which amounts to 12 doors. Um, I have eight short-term rentals and four long-term rentals. Again, only three properties. My first one is my primary residence, which has three additional short-term rentals on it. My second one is a duplex. 
And my third one is a six unit apartment building that I seller financed. So the seller financing deal does not show up on my personal, well, it wouldn't anyways, probably because it's a commercial loan. But so I basically in my name have two properties, my primary residence with, again, the three short term rentals on it and the duplex. My interest rates are 2.99 and 3.25% on those. And my commercial seller finance loan is 5%. So my interest rates are pretty low. Um, I got all three of these mortgages in 2021. So I don't know exactly what it's all worth, but let's say it's worth conservatively 1.75 million. My mortgages are about 1 million. So from a debt coverage perspective, I guess I'm, well, my debt coverage is pretty good, but I mean, from an equity perspective, I probably have maybe 40% equity. Um, If I was very aggressive with debt, I would take out a HELOC on my primary because there's a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity there, or maybe even do a full refinance and things like that. But I'm pretty comfortable with my portfolio being at like 40, 45, 50% equity right now. So I've been keeping a little bit quiet because I'm actually kind of in the middle when it comes to debt. You know, I feel like overall, we're kind of relatively conservative. Our 2.99 on our primary residence, we did buy our place, which was a commercial bed and breakfast. We bought it. It's a house, two accessory dwelling units, and it had a mobile home that we've replaced with a camper that we rent out. And we bought it for 285, renovated it for 175, did a cash out refi, got most of the renovation back and bought the duplex with it with a 3, 3.25% interest rate. So that was kind of the most aggressive thing I've done from a debt perspective. And here we are about a year and a half later, and it's looking like it was a really good deal, tons of equity in both. So I, I feel like I've used debt effectively. I have not gone full Alan Corey yet. Um, So I kind of, I feel like I sit somewhere in the middle. So I I have a hard time taking sides here. Well, I I want to jump in and and piggyback again what Clint said. Like my, my portfolio, I have a lot of debt, but it's, I probably have um, 60% loan to value. Like, so I have like 40% equity overall on a lot of my properties. So I am building um, off debt and pulling off debt, but it's not like like some of you might think where it's all 90, 10 um, and like it's a real thin margin. Like I've got a lot of cushion in all these properties. And a lot of it is because one, the home prices have gone up crazy, but I'm locked in a lot of these interest rates at 3%. So I don't want to cash out right now at a five and a half, 6% interest rate. Uh, but I also am struggling because I'm like, I want access to that equity. So um, it, when you talk about debt, it, it, it's, you got to be smart with debt. It's, it's, a, it's a tool. And just like many tools, it can turn into a weapon that you use on yourself. But you can also use that tool for leverage uh, to really kind of up, up your game. So um, I, I think you're doing it right, Lauren. I love it. You know, tonight we've been talking about debt. It's a terrific topic. Very almost divisive across the group that we have here up on the panel. Um, and so far, the conversation around debt has been using debt to buy assets. And I, you know, hats off to everyone for at least keeping it on topic of we're using debt to buy assets. And the argument is how much debt should you be using to buy assets? We haven't even talked about credit cards or consumer loans to buy Lauren a boat, maybe, <laughs> or something else. So I just I love that we've all been able to keep that on topic. It's terrific. And that just happened naturally. Hipster finance, 
I would love to ask you what's going through your mind and the topic that we've been talking about tonight. You mentioned earlier that you have no debt. You also don't have a home. Uh, or sorry, <laughs> uh, like you, you rent, I assume. But what's your take on everything that we've been talking about tonight? Yeah, thankfully, I'm not homeless, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do have a home. I just rent it. Um, yeah, again, I mean, I, I plan to own property in the future. It's something I've been looking into. But, you know, my my brain naturally leans towards, uh, you know, something in the area where Tom Tom is at, where you're buying properties that, again, easily cash flow uh, for dollar amounts that if it all doesn't go well, you know, you've lost 100 grand or you've lost 80 grand. Uh, you're not out 500 grand or something like that on one property. Um, that to me it instantly gets my interest because uh, again, that's just how I'm built. Uh, you know, I go to casinos, uh, big fan of casinos, but if I gamble, I bring what I'm willing to lose. And, uh, to me, again, I think when you use leverage, when you use debt, you can absolutely get growth. You can't get otherwise, but you're risking more, right? And anytime you take out a debt, whether it's a low interest rate debt or a high interest rate debt, you owe somebody a payment. Yes, maybe those properties cash flow right now, but things can change. We have things like rent control. Uh, we have things like, you know, we saw during coronavirus. I don't know if, you know, how other areas were, but uh, in my area, there was, you know, obviously rent forgiveness and tenants didn't have to pay rent. Now, a lot of the landlords I know weren't impacted by that, but I know some that were where they never saw rent for their properties um, and they will never get back rent for their properties. And, you know, depending on how leveraged you are when that happens, um, you know, you can see negative consequences. To me, I look at it like there are people out there who can handle risk and there are people out there who prefer not to. Um, you know, many of the, many on this space probably know who Alex Honnold is, uh, the free solo guy. He free solos uh, El Capitan, for example, in Yosemite National Park. He doesn't use any ropes. He just climbs up there with his hands. I would never do that, but he does it. And to him, it likely seems very low risk. Uh, but obviously, for me standing on the ground, I think it's insane, right? Um, and so I think this is somewhat similar where, you know, if you know what you're doing, you have control, um, you can absolutely do some powerful things with debt. But I think, what if I'm free soloing and it starts to rain? Uh, what if there's an earthquake and I'm on the side of that mountain, right? Uh, those things can and do happen. And uh, it's just important to prepare for them. So I, I think similar to what Uncommon Yield mentioned, um, I think there's some amazing things you can do with that. You just want to make sure, uh, you know, you're, you're doing it smartly. You're making the best decisions for you. Um, and I'll just close with, you know, uh, we all know that rich people do great things with money. We all know big businesses do great things with money. Um, but I think we can look out there and see examples of rich people and great businesses that went under um, because they got a little over their skis. It's a great way of framing. I love that, getting me over their skis. And I apologize for making it sound like you didn't have a house. You, you know what I meant, though. Uh, Lauren, and then, uh, sorry, let's go with uh, Mary, uh, and then we'll go back to Lauren. I think Lauren was first, though. So go ahead, Lauren. I feel like I need to rebut the boat thing, personally. I borrowed that money from my dad, Stephen, at 0% for six months. Thank you very much. And it's been paid back in full, and he bought me power poles. So that's but that. Is it is it a callable loan, though? Can you call the loan in at any time? 
I paid it back. I paid it back. Uh, I paid it back in three. I paid it back in three. I can't stand owing him money. It bothers me. It's just uh, this boat. This boat came up for sale in my dad's neighborhood, and I just we just maxed our Roths for twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two back to back. So he let us borrow the twenty grand for that, but I paid him back in three months. Um, so I just want to say I don't owe any money on a boat, and my camper paid for itself through Airbnb. As Jeremy was talking, I was wondering one thing, and that's like, can you learn? To handle risk, like maybe you're born majoring in risk, but can you kind of learn to minor in it? I, I think the best exercise, and sort of, I used to be the Dave Ramsey approach, and I had no debt, and I paid off all my credit cards, lived completely in cash in my early 20s, and I learned that I can control my spending habits. And so I think, yeah. That's that's that you get your reps in by controlling money by living in the no debt life, and if you are that way, you are prepared to take on debt. Mary, you used to be in the no debt camp. How did you? What made what brought you over to the dark side? <laughs> yes, the dark side. Um, you know, it was a couple things because I think that. You know, I we lived very frugally and we had saved our money and um, didn't have much debt at all. But we also weren't getting anywhere. Um, and so getting into real estate um, and I, I talked with a, a few people. Um, I have someone, of, a close friend of the family who is a, a quite a successful business guy and he kind of talked about debt to me from his perspective and how he has used it to um, kind of scale up his business and then sell his business at the right time and make a ton of money. And then what he did with that. And, and he talked about the velocity of money and all these things. And so when you, you kind of start thinking with that mindset, I'm doing it on a much smaller scale, but I'm still, you know, not saving up $100,000 to then buy one property, right? This kind of the Dave Ramsey of like, you know, um, save up the money and then buy property, try not to have debt with it. But you could buy one property with $100,000, cash flow $200, get sick of having tenants because you have one tenant. And then by the time you've tried to save up money for your uh, next rental, you've given up because, you know, it takes almost the same amount of work for one tenant as it does for like 10 tenants. So, you know, um, it's kind of, or you could go and put 20000 down on five different $100,000 houses and um, you're going to kind of build up your cash flow quicker that way. And the way you can offset, you know, even amongst the panel tonight, you know, Lauren, who's more conservative, she still used debt, right, to um, get into some great properties that she now has, right? Um, and even Tom, who I think is, you know, really, really conservative, and he's almost used time instead of debt. It's like time has allowed him to scale up as opposed to debt. But you know, he's got now this this um, opportunity with the portfolio loan, and if he buys something or he finds a really good thing to use that money for, you know, it sounds like he's going to jump at it. So it's kind of like even amongst, um, even if you feel like you're more conservative with debt you can still see the value of using it um, for real estate specifically, right? And you learn how to make your money go further. And typically it's by kind of getting started with it and you get more confident and build up. Um, and so originally I thought, oh, you know, we'll, 
we'll buy these like however many properties, five, six properties, and then we'll just put all the money into paying down the debt. And then I kind of learned about cash out refinancing and um, and the tax-free money that you can then live off of doing that. And yes, your debt goes up, right? Because you've now cash out refinanced um, something that appraised higher, but your rent over time has also gone up, right? And then you've pulled out money that is tax-free that you can kind of live on, let the tenants keep paying down your property, keep building up equity in it and cash out refinance again, right? Um, and so kind of a few different things aligned where it made more sense to go the debt route than to try to pay down all the properties. Um, and as well, if you are feeling a little like, well, and and by the way, for, for my portfolio as well, um, I'm about at a 75, um, maybe 70% loan to value too, but just not all my money is, you know, I don't have 30% of my money in it. Um, because I was able to do a couple of burrs. And so I pulled almost all of my money back out. So that's another thing is that within real estate, there's a lot of strategies where, you know, you're using the debt, you're, you're buying, right. You're, you're finding these good properties. Um, and then you can use your money for, to put into other properties or for whatever else you need it for. Um, but keep a lot of cash on hand. If you are feeling nervous about the debt, you know, have six months of, of mortgage payments, right? If you are worried something, I mean, businesses do this, they should have cash on their books. Look at Apple, right? They have the most ridiculous amount of cash on their books and they uh, might not feel a downturn. And it's the same thing. I'm not comparing myself to Apple, but I'm saying that, you know, um, we have six months of reserves to cover our, our mortgage debt. So um, for me, that feels very comfortable. I, I've had tenants, I've had turnover that took six weeks. Um, we're actually in that right now. And I don't have any problems covering my mortgage payment. I don't even think about it. It, it automatically gets taken out of the bank account. I'm, I don't even look because I know I'm, I'm fine and that's sitting there. So there are ways as well to kind of mitigate um, the risk that comes with it. Um, but for me, not having this is more risky if, if I'm just trying to work my job and hope at the end that the Florida pension is going to be there when I'm like 72 and finally can retire. I don't know. I'm going to take my chances on um, people needing to live in my, my properties. So, <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Mary. Tom, I wanted to give you a chance to, to weigh in there. Mary called you old. But I think you're not. And let's hear how your story has gone with that. We're the same age. <laughs> yeah, Mary and I are exactly the same age. I've just scaled a lot slower. And I have taken on debt. And I see the value in taking on debt. But my comfort level is not at a 70%. It's at a 25 to 50% um, leverage on, on my portfolio. And that, and that's why I've. It's taken me eighteen years, and and Mary has been buying real estate for how many years? Mary, three years. Yep. So it's taken me eighteen years, um, but that's my level of comfort. And in two thousand, I was traumatized when I tried to take out a loan in two thousand nine. So in two thousand ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, when I bought properties. I was selling bras to buy these properties. I wasn't trying to borrow because of the trauma that I was put through by Bank of America in 2009 when I applied for this tiny little loan. 
I had applied for loans in 2004 and 2005 and I like whipped through paperwork and got properties super easy. And after the financial crash, it was, it was traumatizing and I didn't want to put so, myself so through what, that. What, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, just the amount that went in, I tried to borrow for a $26,000 two bedroom, two bath condo in Dallas and the amount of scrutiny that came from underwriting and the amount of paperwork and the amount of questions. And then when I sent over statements, they literally sent me messages and they're like, why are you spending $76 at the 99 cents store? Like that was a question that came from an underwriter. And I was so, I mean, the deal went through and it was a great property and I flipped it in 2011 and it got me rolling. But after that, then I just started buying cash properties because I'm like, I don't want to borrow $26,000 from Bank of America ever again. I don't want to do business with Bank of America ever again. And that's why I've scaled slower and I've taken on less debt. And I did have a moment of panic in 2020 when COVID started. I'm like, okay, how long am I going to be able to carry any of my properties if I don't get rent from all, I don't know, I had 14 or 15 doors and I felt comfortable saying I can carry all of these for a minimum of a year and not, you know, I'll have to work a little bit harder on eBay and sell extra bras, but I can make this work for a year and go to sleep tonight knowing that my property, you know, so many people lost properties in 2008. I did not want to put myself in that situation where I was going to lose a property. And right now, if I were in that situation, I would lose sleep and, you know, not having a nine to five, this is where my level of comfort is. Um, so that's where I'm at with debt and why I don't take on a ton of it. Tom, so can I just to say, it's credit, a... sorry, um, just to Tom's credit, for those of you that aren't with us each and every week, he's under 40. He doesn't have a nine to five. He has 18, no, 20 doors now. You just bought another one. And he has very low debt. And it's taken him a few years to build, but he's still under 40. And so just, you know, kudos and tip of the hat for you, Tom, there. And uh, you've accomplished so much. And and your salary while you were working, I'm sorry, but I don't get up there into the bus on this, was always under 100K. Always and, under 100K. And, yeah. and the, if you guys are new here, I have flipped products and bought properties with it. I've literally sold a truckload of bras and bought a condo in Dallas with it in cash. So that's kind of, I've always looked at what the other investors are ignoring and that's how I've been able to scale my wealth. And yes, my, my highest salary at my nine to five when I had it was, was almost 80,000, but I started at 32,000. Retail oriented job. And so I, I, and I'm, it's a terrific story, man, that you can accomplish and retire yourself before 45. I know you're younger, much younger than that, but with focus, you can truly achieve it. And I love your story and uh, I love sharing it each and every week, man. Lauren, you have your hand up. Um, Jeremy, go ahead first. I was just going to say, I think it's pretty epic that Tom is building a real estate empire on the back of selling bras on eBay. I mean, that's, that's pretty epic. Thank you bras and makeup you should see the makeup there's a lot of it very small items sells the no polish really yep. really really high uh, <laughs> really high markup i think they my favorite one was uh tom you had i think if i'm not mistaken the uh football gloves i did i bought a palette of nike gloves and i palette think we actually gloves. yeah that's right we 
we just shipped out our last pair this week, which is amazing. So it took me a little, like maybe seven months to get rid of a pallet of them. But weren't you, you weren't weren't you basically plus fifteen dollars or plus ten dollars per pair of gloves? It was a little bit less than ten dollars a pair, and like the pair that we sold this week, I think we sold for fifty nine dollars. Um, so it was a, a huge markup. It just took a while to move all of them. And certain teams moved super quick on the gloves. And then other teams just sat there. And I'm not going to call out anyone's teams. Yeah, I, rem- <laughs> I, 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 remem- I remember the when you told us the story about those football gloves. I went inside and I said to my wife, like, you need to get going on this reselling my buddy Tom and and I want to I want to say I feel like on that pallet you made like 40 50 grand so I know we're joking about reselling but you made big money on that pallet of football gloves from what I recall and I, I was super impressed on that one that's why it was so stuck in my mind I did I didn't make that because I wholesaled some there was a point where I'm like okay these ones aren't moving so then I turned around and I sold those much lower and then they resold them out at the flea market so when I have products that can't move I mean you can usually tell pretty quick and we I think we started with 20 or 30 different gloves and and you could tell that 20 of them were going to be great but the other 10 were going to be duds so some of them got wholesaled so I didn't walk away with that but there there was a lot of profit on the glove palette I just thought it was weird that you modeled both the gloves and the bras. That is Lauren's job. <laughs> We've been over this. I, I do wear bras. Not a secret there. Um, Steven, I was going to ask you about your condo because you've had it since before the crash as well, right? And like, what did it do in terms of value and rent and stuff? Yeah, no, terrific question. Uh, the financial crisis didn't affect Canada to the same degree that it hit the States. In fact, I bought the house that I'm sitting in tonight uh, during the financial crisis. I think I've actually signed the paperwork to buy it the day after or two days after the Lehman Brothers collapsed. And uh, What? Yeah, it was just hilarious. Well, not it wasn't hilarious. No, it was just uncanny the timing that we had with it. So I actually bought this house well under market because they couldn't find anyone who had the credit and ability to to buy it. Um, I did at the time, and it has turned out to be a fantastic investment. This house is appreciated. Oh, it's more than doubled. And then I was able to use the equity in it. Uh, I wrote a thread about this a while ago where I took out $300,000 against my house, put it in the stock market during... Uh, March or April of 2020 in the thread I actually have a screenshot of the stock purchase that I put in there Uh, there's $298,000 one transaction just hit it the heart was racing when I did I didn't you know it felt like the world was crashing everything was coming around but it's turned out to be one of the best investments I ever did it slingshotted shortly thereafter and it's made me a ton of money Um, but through the rent yeah there were i have had some the most difficult time for renting was in 2014 uh that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to everyone on the panel here but in 2014 there was um i live in an energy oil and gas town and in 2014 saudi arabia started to pump out 
and make excess oil and it made it more difficult for oil producers here in my town to make money and so it made it very difficult for us to find renters uh i had to lower my rents um i think it went down to two hundred dollars less than what it was normally took a little longer to find someone to rent it but it wasn't too difficult like it it closed pretty quick wasn't too difficult at the time i was kind of stressing about it but looking back it's like well a month without rent you're fine don't worry about it two hundred dollars less it's okay as long as you're covering the mortgage and covering your fees and stuff like that you're fine uh and then now it's back to normal in fact it's the market here is getting crazy and we're having a bit of a spill off from vancouver where clint is uh where people are selling in vancouver moving out to where i'm at in calgary here and uh, picking up our houses and making our house prices go up now. So, but uh, does that answer your question, Lauren? Yeah, no, it does. It it sounds like your rent went down a little bit, but that's what I always kind of think about with these things. And, and my plan for the short-term rentals, first of all, my short-term rentals are in places that are very drivable. So if the, if we have, you know, the R word, and everything kind of drops off from a travel perspective. I feel as though people won't be flying and they may be looking for region, you know, regional driving areas. And so they'll still drive to my SDRs, but even if my short-term rentals become a problem and they really have a ton more vacancy than we ever expected or underwrote or whatever, we can still flip to kind of long-term rentals. And I haven't seen that rents have gone down as much. Um, So I always feel like I kind of have that, backup as an option. It sounds like, Alan, I think that's what you said before, too, going through the financial crisis 0809, you know, and, and beyond that rents kind of stayed pretty level. And so you, you know, you just have to hold on a little longer, maybe. Yeah. And, and recessions, you know, if you get a situation where people are losing their houses, then it creates more rental tenants at the same time. I think a lot of people attach their primary residence as real estate investing. It's just a different thing. Like, everyone was affected with their primary residence and typically your primary residence, you don't get the time when you got to sell, right? You either, you, you get a job transfer, a divorce, a death, a marriage, a baby, and you just, you just have to move uh, for whatever reason. And then you're, you're at the whims of the market. So um, I think a lot of us as real estate investors need to detach the recessions and, and everything. Um, and, and make sure you get some decent cash flow to cover you if you do have to drop your rents 200 bucks or whatever. Awesome. Mary, you put your hand up and then Lauren. Yeah, I was going to say on, on that note, um, I'm very conservative with my underwriting. So I will write lower for rents than, you know, what um, Rentometer, Zillow, the, the, real, the real estate agent, what they all say, right? And I kind of extensively try to research that and then I'll write, I'll underwrite it lower. Um, so I give myself a cushion. And so a, a property I bought in October, I um, underwrote it at a certain amount. It rented for $400 more than what I underwrote it for. And so at, you know, if the rental market drops and I can't rent it for that again, I've got a $400 cushion to cash flow $300 a month, right? So it could drop even more than that. I would still be cash flowing. Um, so some of it too does come down to the underwriting um, when you're looking at a deal and, and making sure you're not kind of reaching to make the deal work that that you kind of really found a good deal. And in the in these markets, it, it is harder. Um, and 
And so that's kind of one area too, where you can um, feel more confident about, you know, maybe the debt on a property because um, you are confident in the way you underwrote the deal. Um, and I will say in Florida, you know, rents did drop during the financial crisis. Um, it may not have everywhere. Part of that was because they kind of the home builders overbuilt. And so there were like brand new houses for rent. And then, you know, the, the kind of class B and C had to drop their rental prices. Um, but if you build that into your plans as a possibility, then you're kind of covering that. Um, what I'm seeing kind of now, it's a, it's a different kind of market. So I feel like my class B's will get filled um, by people who can't afford class A property rentals anymore. I, I think we're kind of looking at that a little bit more. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of what I keep in mind. And Stephen, I wanted to point out, having a $300 HELOG or $300,000 HELOG put into stock market. See, I'd be more comfortable putting that into a rental property. So for you, that was quite risky, right? So you're, you're thinking about that's where your knowledge was or your confidence level of being able to, even though it sounded like it was still nerve wracking for you, you were still confident enough to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Mary. It, it ended up being close to 500,000. It was 300,000 to begin with. And then I put another 200 over time. I don't, like to talk about it much because I don't want to encourage people to do the same thing. It was a super high risk move at the time. It feels like it was even today, uh, but it has paid off tremendously. And um, so when people talk about not buying the dips or buying the dips, I'm definitely in the dip camp. It has worked for me in ways that I can't, it's difficult to describe. Uh, Lauren. Um, I know we're coming up on time here because we normally go for 90 minutes we haven't talked about whether you should pay your primary house off or not. And I feel like we should probably touch on that. Should we, because Brennan is not here and he is the big <laughs> one that paid off his house uh, before leaving his nine to five. I'll, I'll jump in. It's the cheapest money you're ever going to find is your homeowner, your owner occupied mortgage. Um, the cheapest rates you'll ever get on anything, borrowing money. So 100% never pay off your your primary residence. Um, the other way to look at it, if interest rates are 4% and you pay it off, you're getting 4% return on your money, which is also the lowest return you're going to get on your money on most investments. Um, so it, yeah, you put, I would do 100% what Stephen does. Take that money and put it in the stock market that on historically, you know, will return 8%. So you're borrowing money at 4% and we're getting a return of 8% historically. Uh, but if you're going to hold it for 30 years, because it's your primary residence, you're going to put it in the stock market for 30 years, then those historic returns will probably benefit you in the long run. Clint, do you want to go now? Yeah, sure. I'll chime in on on two points. One on the uh, should we pay off our home? Well, you know, some people are crazy, so sure, you should. But the no, what I, what all joking aside, the what I've always said with Brennan and how I've always approached this argument with people is, you, you can't argue economically that it's the right thing to do. Economically, Alan just nailed it. Economically, it's the wrong thing to do. But you have to recognize that psychologically it may absolutely be the right thing to do. And so you as the person who has the debt or doesn't have the debt 
are the one who chooses. That's why it's personal finance. So if psychologically you're better off by paying off the debt, then pay off the debt. So I, I definitely err on, I believe, 100% economically it's the wrong thing to do. And I recognize for each individual person, psychologically, it's going to do different things because some people may be paralyzed by the amount of debt. Like if I even say the amount of debt I have on my single family home to my sister, like I saw her have physical heart palpitations when I said the number, like she like looked at me and was like, how do you live? Right. And so I'd say that on that. The, the next thing that I wanted to highlight, and I know this isn't like dollar cost averaging versus should we time the market week? But Steve, I'm the same as you. Almost every home that I've bought that I've had significant wins on is, and, and you interviewed me and wrote the article on it, almost every time it's been, when, when is the blood in the streets? When are people not wanting to buy? When is the herd telling you real estate's the wrong thing to do? And we're starting to get there, right? You remember when I wrote that post on real estate recently and People were calling me stupid and saying, hey, dumb, dumb, like interest rates are going up. You're a moron. It was a bit abusive. And, you know, the you you all as a group jumped in and kind of defended me, which was, was helpful. Um, but people are starting to get there. So that tells me in the next six to nine months, I want as much dry powder on the side that will be ready so that it if it really is a herd mentality out of the market, that we can all jump in like feet first and pick up as many homes as we can because we know here's the thing in most of the U S I think you guys can often get into worse shape than we can um, because you have an ability to build more Steve. I think Alberta can get in worse shape than Vancouver because again, you have the ability to like spread out and go to like giant swaths of land. So I, I think it can be different by geography, but on average, not enough homes are being built for the amount of people that need homes. And so it's a supply demand mismatch. And with that supply demand mismatch, we are going to continue to see the price of homes rise in most geographic areas in Canada and the U S. So if people want to jump out and drop prices 10 to 15%, eventually it'll be up 20 to 30. So if they, if they're willing to drop out and let prices go down, then I think that is an opportunity where you step in and buy. And then you may sit on the sidelines for a while, depending on what your capital looks like. Uh, and Lauren, I see you have your hands up, so I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, I was just going to say there are people in, you know, both sides of, of me and my husband's family who know we have money in the stock market. And, uh, you know, they come to us like, do you have money in the stock market right now? I'm like, yep. And we're buying more. And they know that we have some properties. They probably know that we didn't pay cash for these properties. And there are people around us that think we're, we're really on the edge of like probably total ruin. right? But part of this and what we've talked about throughout the night, throughout the last 90 minutes has been personal finance is personal. How you feel about debt is personal. And what you know about these individual asset classes classes is different than the people around you, right? If people do not understand real estate, like you understand real estate, if they don't understand stocks, like you understand stocks, they can be very scared and be very scared for you and be vocalizing that to you. But just remember what you know, and don't forget to be confident in yourself and what you know about these different asset classes. And, you know, don't forget to stay the, stay the course, you know, be confident in that. That was just one thing that I wanted to add, Clint. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren. We're at the end of the episode for this week. Just want to take a moment here and thank everyone on our panel for joining us this evening. Uh, we are here each and every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. We run for 90 minutes and we talk about real estate and ways in which we can build wealth and personal finances. If you haven't had a chance to, please click on the profiles of the panel and speakers tonight and follow each and every one of them, their terrific accounts. Thank you, Clint, for joining us. Lauren from Adulting is Easy uh, podcast, Hipster Finance, The Frugal Gay, Tom, Mary, and Alan Corey. Thank you all for being with us. If you missed or joined in late, this has been recorded and will be available on the Adulting is Easy podcast in a number of days here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight, and we'll see you next week. Good night.